Brian Mayer, before we get on to the details and implications of the Supreme Court ruling effectively exonerating former President Nacio Lula da Silva, or Lula for short, let's go back a step, as it may be useful for our listeners to get a brief summary of his achievements in office from 2003 to 2011. Why was he so popular and what social reforms did his government implement? Well, when he took office... The, Brazil was still trapped in these IMF conditionality agreements in which they couldn't increase any kind of social spending. So on the same day, he and Nestor Kirchner paid off all of the IMF loans early in 2005. And because of this early payback, I understand that the IMF had to lay off nearly a thousand workers. They lost so much money. Um, so starting from 2005 forwards, he massively increased social spending. First of all, uh, from the moment he took office, he started increasing minimum wage. So one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the greatest factor in his lifting 26 million people out of poverty, according to this big, long study by IPEA, which is this economics institute connected to uh, academia and government in Brazil, is that it was this minimum wage increases. When he took office, the minimum salary was under $50 a month in dollar terms. And when he left office, it was like $315 a month. This had a massive impact in reducing poverty. But he also uh, did a pension reform which brought tens of millions of rural informal workers into the pension fund and, made, and, and locked the, pe- the monthly pension payment to the minimum salary. So this lifted millions of people out of poverty in the rural Northeast, which was the poorest part of the country. And he implemented a kind of welfare system called Bolsa Familia. In addition, they doubled education and health spending. And they, uh, his, his successor, Dilma Rousseff, locked um, profits from the uh, state petroleum company, Petrobras, into um, health and education spending. And so that was the first thing that was undone after the coup. Speaking of the coup, or what many commentators have certainly described as the coup, and jumping now to 2017, six years after Lula left office, he was convicted of accepting bribes from a construction company in the form of renovations done to a beachfront property which he allegedly owned. He was sentenced to nine and a half years in prison and ended up serving around a year and a half. The latest development is that the Supreme Court has ruled he was not tried in the correct jurisdiction and therefore his conviction has been annulled. There's, of course, a lot of moving parts to this story, but let's start with your reaction to the effective exoneration of Lula by the Supreme Court. Okay. First of all, I'd like to clarify something. He was convicted of committing indeterminate acts of corruption because the judge and prosecutors who had been working together the whole time, we now know from leaked telegram conversations, um, couldn't find any material evidence. There's no evidence he ever spent even a day in this apartment in question. It wasn't, the deed wasn't in his name. The apparent reforms that were received were never done because the MTST social movement broke into the building afterwards, but they refused to let the press in. And there there were no reforms done in there. The name of the name on the deed was the construction company. And, um, the supposed reforms took place years after he left office. So it was impossible 
to prove any kind of quid pro quo. So these charges were thrown out effectively for forum shopping. Uh, the prosecutors tried to move it into the district of a judge who they knew was working with them, we all know from the Telegram conversations, oh, and also with the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice. Just to jump in there, Brian, and to just to tease that out a bit more, you're referring to those political connections between the coup plotters and, and Bolsonaro, Lula's political enemies, and specifically Sergio Moro, who was the, the, the judge in the case, who was then rewarded later, wasn't he, by Bolsonaro as, as he was appointed as the Minister for Justice. Yeah. Remembering that these leaked telegram conversations show them praying to God that Bolsonaro would win the election, the prosecutors, right? Um, yeah, so he became just a Bo- Bolsonaro's uh, so-called super justice minister, and the first week after Bolsonaro took office, they visited CIA headquarters together in Langley, Virginia, the first time a Brazilian president has ever visited CIA headquarters. Mm. Okay, so, so anyway, there was a lot of problems. I mean, even before the telegram leaks, there was no reason why the case should have ever been moved to a jurisdiction where the crime in question didn't take place, the alleged crime, and the, the, the defendant never lived or owned property in or anything. It's really weird that it was even allowed to be moved there, but initially they made a, a frivolous charge that was connected to Petrobras Petroleum Company, which operates nationally. Now we have leaked conversations saying, uh, with a judge telling the prosecutors, as long as he's purchased gasoline from a gas station owned by this petroleum company, we can link it. Hmm. But even so, they dropped the Petrobras charge, like a month after it was moved to, to Curitiba, even so, the Guardian reported the week before Lula was arrested that uh, it was, he was being arrested for a Petrobras corruption scheme, even though the charge had been removed two, uh, two years earlier. So I, I have to be very, I always jump in and try and explain what the charges are be- were sure. because they were so absurd. They were just so absolutely absurd. Not one piece of material evidence. Sure, sure. I mean, clearly politically motivated, and you've outlined that very well there, Brian. But moving now to uh, what's happened in recent days, I mean, would you argue that the tide has turned politically, at least in, in terms of some aspect of the judiciary? How would you explain this ruling, which technically doesn't exonerate Lula, but has said that, has ruled that the conviction wasn't in, in the correct jurisdiction? Why do you think that decision has been made, and, and, and where do you see things that, you know, going from here? Okay, first of all, what it does is it threw out, they dismissed all charges against Lula made in the ambit of Lava Jato. What the judge ruled is that if someone wants to start a new case, they can use some of the plea bargain testimony that was used against Lula in, the, in these procedures. But the charges themselves have all been dropped. Okay, so uh, we know for also from, basically there's six terabytes of leaked Telegram conversations. The chief prosecutor never erased his messages for five years. And so we know that several of the Supreme Court justices, including the uh, Edson Fashion, who made this ruling, were compromised and involved uh, in, uh, in the investigation, you know, like uh, helping aid what they knew was a corrupt investigation. At one point, the chief prosecutor is yelling into Telegram that Fashin is in their pocket, for example. So what people think is that he was protecting Sergio Moro 
because the, the Supreme Court opened criminal investigations against Sergio Moro and Dalton Dalekno. So in dropping all charges from Lava Jato, it canceled those investigations as well. Okay, so it looks like the political configuration, you know, just uh, by act of fate or whatever, just favored Lula last week. Because if he hadn't done anything, Sergio Moro probably would be on his way to jail. You know, so it's tricky, but it does look like the political conjuncture is changing because the elite, a lot of Brazilian elites realize the disaster that has happened in Brazil since Bolsonaro took power. He, Bolsonaro was not their plan A, you know? <laughs> Sure. And and speaking of, of Bolsonaro and what the future might hold politically for Brazil, Lula is now free to nominate for the 2022 presidential election. Do you think he will do so? And, and how do you assess uh, his prospects? Well, all polls. The polls showed he had more support than all other candidates combined in 2018, even three months after he was arrested and prohibited from speaking to the press. He's very popular, and the recent polls of potential presidential candidates show him having the lowest rejection rate of any candidate, 13 points ahead of the second candidate, who's Bolsonaro, who still has like a large fanatical base of maybe 30% of the population. So if he runs, he would win, and there's a good chance he would win in the first round. Um, he hasn't announced if he's going to run or not, but... Regardless, he's a major political factor, and anyone he supports would have a good chance of beating Bolsonaro, even if he doesn't run. Speaking of Bolsonaro, give us a thumbnail sketch of life under his rule. Things must be very bad when even some sections of the right-wing Western press have acknowledged the increase in police murders in the favelas, the intensification of exploitation in the Amazon, the woeful mismanagement during the recent uh, massive Amazon fires, and of course, arguably his criminal handling of the COVID-19 crisis, which has so far led to over a quarter of a million deaths in Brazil. I mean, it's just a, it's a cascading kind of multifaceted set of crises there, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, um, a lot of... Uh, he's been transformed into this kind of um, cartoonish supervillain internationally. But a lot of the damage being done is by his economics minister, Paulo Geddes, who was one of the original Chicago boys who studied under Milton Friedman in the 1970s at University of Chicago and lived for 12 years in Pinochet's Chile, taking a university uh, position from a professor who had been arrested for being a leftist. And uh, he's, he raised the retirement age. Um, he's gutted education spending. He's got, um, he's, He's selling off important state assets at pennies on the dollar. For example, the credit card company controlled by the uh, Banco do Brasil, which is the largest public bank in the Americas, he sold it off to a hedge fund that he created for 12% of its market value. So there's all kinds of economic stuff going on in the background that's not reported on much. On top of that, Bolsonaro is encouraging loggers and soy farmers and cattle ranchers to burn down forests inside of indigenous reservations and national parks yeah. and start using the land for whatever they want. He's made it clear that he, he's not going to punish them. He gutted all of the environmental regulation and agencies, removing their capacity to enforce any kinds of laws. And we have the, 
you know, the COVID, the disastrous mishandling of COVID crisis, where he's still going on Facebook Live almost daily, as recently as like a week ago, telling people they shouldn't wear masks and they shouldn't pay attention to governors and mayors' um, lockdown orders. So he's, he's, it's like, it almost seems like he's encouraging COVID. He is encouraging COVID to spread, you know, and so it's pretty disastrous in those terms. I walked outside of my house. I live on the periphery of Sao Paulo. I walked out of my house yesterday, and the, the first 16 people I saw on the street weren't wearing masks. Mm. And this is the, you know, this is the, we're in the worst moment of the COVID pandemic yet because of this Manaus strain that's two and a half times more contagious and is killing much younger people. Brian, uh, the interviews we do here on the Indie Media Show about the politics of Central and South America always circle back to the question of the regional picture, the regional balance of power. In, in recent history, we've seen what some have called the pink tide, others the revolutionary movement led by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in Bolivia, who himself has returned to the political scene after a period of enforced exile. Um, it's perhaps an unreasonably large and complex uh, question to end on, but where does Lula fit into this uh, picture of that you know, regional kind of political balance of power and, and what sort of hopes centre around him in, in terms of the future for ordinary Brazilians? Well, um, you know, he was a key actor in the rise of the pink tide. You have to take into consideration the fact that Brazil has almost half of the population of Latin America, and its economy is roughly equal to about half the economy of Latin America. Um, and his signing, together with Hugo Chavez, of the motion to kill the Free Trade Partnership Agreement of the Americas, the FTAA, was a major victory for, for left and center-left governments in Latin America. And, you know, he was uh, influential in a lot of regional processes of left solidarity, even though if you look at his government, it was essentially social democracy. He's not, he doesn't even claim to be a socialist. Nevertheless, the, the most important thing for governments in Latin America is to try to maintain some kind of sovereignty against the United States, which holds coups in the last hundred years. They've held a coup, orchestrated a coup in Latin America on average every 2.4 years, successful coup with many other coups of attempts underway constantly, like against Venezuela for the last 20 years or whatever. So um, regionally, he's important because he, he shows that it's possible to make deals with China and Russia and other countries outside of the orbit of the United States influence while still not cutting off ties with the United States. This annoys a lot of people obviously in the U.S., they would rather have Brazil just act like a pawn, a 100% pawn of U.S. interests, which is what Bolsonaro is doing right now. 